Hey, I have the privilege of carrying on this whole series tonight on fear, and I love this topic. I love the whole series that we're in, because who's not afraid of something? And tonight, we're talking about the fear of failure. And there's a lot of things regarding failure that we could be afraid of, areas of failure that could preoccupy us. It might be relational, it might be career or financial, it might just be general in life. So before I begin, what I'd like you to do, I'm going to give you like 30 seconds, turn to the person next to you, if you don't know them, introduce yourself and say, here's something I'm afraid of failing at, all right? You got 30 seconds, go. You got 10 seconds, go to the next person. All right, awesome, very good, very good. Very courageous of you to share what you're afraid of failing at. Some of you are just making plans of where you're gonna go to eat afterwards, I know. You didn't even share about your fear of failure, that's okay. You know, when I was young, I remember being afraid that I wouldn't make it when it came to relationships. I had a fear of like relationship failure. And I had a good reason to be afraid of that because I, I dated around in, in college, but I had no relationship that extended past eight weeks. And I, I, there was just something that happened. The minute it felt like it was getting serious, I was looking for the exit and I just couldn't do it. And I began to worry that I couldn't like relationally give myself to another person and then fortunately, I met my awesome wife who's way in the back, and, uh, and then I discovered I can, and I can make that commitment. It was just, I either I wasn't ready for it, I hadn't met Karen yet, and so that was a fear of failure that I was preoccupied with. And then once I got that fear of failure out of the way, I began to fear in uh, career failure. Other people started getting promoted while I was kind of stuck in a position and I began to worry that maybe I wasn't um, making it and I, maybe I'd chosen the wrong thing. And so other people are having advancements or getting better office arrangements or, or newer computers or whatever like the, the thing was. And I began to fear that I was not making it in my career. And then once that seemed like, okay, no, I, that, that I'm not failing in my career, uh, in my marriage, I, we started having children. And uh, as a dad, one of the most chilling ideas is that I'm failing as a dad. I have a near 20-year-old Megan, uh, a 17-year-old high school senior. I have a 13-year-old boy. I still, I still pray, God, don't let me fail as a dad. And then there's just the general life. Like, I, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I uh, obedient to God in this? Am I, am, I, uh, am I following him? At the end of all this, is he going to go, you know, Bill, could have been so much. What a disappointment. And I have pretty good theology. I know he won't do that to me, but yet there's still that fear of failure. So I think, I think that we all end up with like failure fears. Now, some of those things are really healthy and preserve our lives. If, for instance, the person who goes, you know, I think I'm going to take a week's vacation, go to, to Yosemite, and I'm going to like free climb El Capitan, but I'm a little afraid I might fail and die. And I would suggest to you that's not a bad fear because you could fall and die. That's actually like a God-given fear to preserve your life. Or, or you might go, I've always dreamed of just quitting my job and going off and, and being a rock star and just pursuing my dream of being a popular musician, but I'm afraid that I will fail at that and I will starve to death. And that might be God's grace to remind you, 
you will starve to death. You have to get a job. You can play, but you're probably not a good idea to quit your job. Those, there are certain fears that are good for us. And then thanks to social media, there's some things like that we begin to uh, fear failing at because we're comparing to other people, right? You know, like you, you take a guy, you, you, there's Tim and there's Roger and Tim goes on vacation. And, and what is he? He like rents, um, he rents this place and it's a dump. Now on the pictures on the internet, it looked great, but it is an absolute dated junky place. It's near nothing cool. He walks two miles to the nearest beach. He gets there and he sees this beautiful sailboat going by. So what's he doing? Pulls out the camera, takes a picture of the sailboat, pops it up on Instagram. What a great vacation, right? Meanwhile, Roger's back at the office and he sees Tim's fabulous vacation. And he thinks, I'm falling behind. I'm failing at this thing called life because look at what Tim is doing. He's having this wonderful vacation. That's probably his yacht sailboat because Tim has projected an image of himself that's grander than himself, and Roger's not sharp enough to think that. Meanwhile, Roger gets called into a meeting into his boss's office, and normally lives in Cube Farm, but he's in his boss's office, corner office, 17th floor of the tower downtown. It looks great. He's admiring the view, and the boss says, hey, take a picture if you like it. Isn't it beautiful out there? And he takes a picture. And later in the day, he posts to his social media profile, getting it done at work today. Love my view. Right? And so Tim's back here in the dump, and he's thinking, Roger is getting ahead, and I'm failing. I can't even afford a nice place to go on vacation. But we all struggle with fears about failing. And the good news is this has been a human issue since the beginning of time. And if you fear failure, you're in good company. Because we all fear it at some level. But in the scriptures, there is a guy He's famous. He's a guy that we wouldn't normally go to when we think probably dealt with fears around failure. His name's Moses. And we pick up his story in uh, the first couple chapters of Exodus. In fact, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I would invite you to turn there. We're going to spend a lot of time in Exodus 3 and 4. So if you uh, have a copy with you, first couple, it's the second book of the Bible, hard to miss. Exodus 3, if you have a smart device, you know, like pull it up on your smart device. If you check Facebook, we will take away your phone. And so here's what we read. It's in Exodus 3, starting in verse 1. It says this, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. And Moses stared in amazement through Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. I mean, he's seen lots of bushes that have been on fire, but the fire consumes the bush, and then it's just like black and ashen. But this time, it's a bush, and it's a scrub bush, and it's on fire, and it keeps, like, the fires just keep going and going and going, and it doesn't burn out. And he says, why isn't that bush burning up? What's he do? I must go see. I must go take a closer look. Odds are you know who Moses was. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably know he was born in Egypt and his parents were Hebrew, but it wasn't good to be a boy Hebrew at the time. And so mom floated him down in a river raft of sorts down the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter picks him up. And if you've seen Prince of Egypt, he grows up in this wonderful idyllic environment. Odds are that was very fictional. 
if we date properly when all this went down, the Pharaoh who was on the throne of Egypt when all of this was taking place had 52 sons. Which means if, like, odds play out, he had 52 daughters, which means he had 100 kids, which means one of the girls picks up Moses in a basket and takes him home as a pet. And so Moses grows up around royalty, probably not like fantastic situation for himself, but he ends up trying to um, right some wrongs, kills an Egyptian, flees the country, and here we are 20 years later, he's about 40 years of age, and he sees a burning bush, and he has this memory of a former life in Egypt that was somewhat pretty good in the last 20 years of tending sheep in the Sinai Peninsula. There's Moses' backstory. Verse 4, it says, when Moses uh, when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, this is like bait on the hook for Moses. God's like, burn the bush. Moses comes and God says, all right, come a little closer. And then God calls, him from, calls to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here am I. Now, if I were Moses, I would run like I'm about to be a victim in a horror movie. If you hear a burning bush talk to you, Nine times out of ten, you're going to die an ugly death. But this time, Moses listens, and the Lord warned, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord told him, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites now live. It's a great land. There is a problem. Some people are already in it. I'll take care of that later. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go off. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And God says, I have a mission for you. And as soon as he says it, Moses has this overwhelming sense of dread. Like I said, he's probably 40 years old. There's nothing in his life that up till now would lead you to believe this guy's going to lead a great cause. He grew up in weird circumstances, had to flee for his life, is now tending sheep. And God says, I have a mission for you. In verse 11, we hear Moses protest. It says, but Moses protested to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? And if you like to take notes, we're going to look at a, a few fear of failures. And fear of failure, number one, is the fear that I am not enough. That I can't bring it. That when it boils down to it, I do not have what it takes. That when push comes to shove, I'm the one on the ground. 
And God, you're calling me to a task, and I don't know if you know who, I don't know if you know who you're calling. I don't have the LinkedIn profile. I do not have the resume. I don't have the followers on Instagram for this. Nothing in me says that I am enough. It's a great historical story back in the 1850s. A guy named Sam, he was a failed soldier. He was a, sail, a failed farmer. He was, um, he was struggling to make a go of it in business. He'd gone to West Point, but his military career didn't work out so well. And so when the Civil War broke out in 1860, he tried to sign up. But the government said, we don't have a place for you, don't have a place for you. He was kind of blackballed. By 1861, he had a commission. And by 1864, he was the lead general of all federal troops. And by 1868, he was the president of the United States. See, there was nothing in the 1850s that would have told you that Ulysses S. Grant was someday going to be in charge of the largest United States military up till that time and then eventually become president. Nothing in his resume would have led you to that conclusion. You would have said, we'll die penniless or end up cannon fodder. And all too often we look or feel like U.S. Grant in the 1850s and we go, I'm, I'm not enough. And Moses said, I'm not enough. So the question is, how did God reply to that fear? Verse 12, God answered, I will be with you. Now notice what he doesn't say. I kind of wish what God would say is like, Moses, come on, buddy. I mean, you grew up kind of in Pharaoh's household of sorts and in, in your Hebrew and you know the land, you know the topography. You've been shepherding out here for a couple decades. So when you lead the people out, you'll know like where waterways are and good trails are. I mean, come on, Moses, you got a lot of good qualities about you and you can navigate this wilderness pretty well and I'll be beside you. No, he doesn't say that. He just says, verse 12, I will be with you. I will be with you. And you would think that that would settle the frustration. Verse 13, but Moses protested. But if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, then they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? And this is a fear of failure number two that most of us struggle with at some point or another. I don't know enough. I don't know enough. Moses says, look, I'm no theologian. I, there's a lot I don't know. What if they ask me a tough question? What if they ask me, well, where's God been during all of the struggles that we faced? And isn't the gods of the Egyptians stronger than the, like the Hebrew God? Because he got us into this mess and he can't get us out. And the best he's going to do is send some scruffy dude from the Sinai Peninsula in here. Like, what, what, if, what if they ask the tough questions? And some of us feel just like that. It's why, maybe in our places of work or where we attend school, it's why we don't speak up. It's why we don't maybe invite people to the gathering or to church or to talk about our faith or to out ourselves in that spiritual sector of our lives. Because what if someone asks the tough question? What if they say, well, if, there's, if you believe in that God, why does he allow that? Does your God really say you can't do this? Why does he say you can't do this? How come he's into all the rules? How come he says no more than he says yes? Where is he? You know, I believe in him. Can you do a little miracle? I didn't bring my lunch today. What if the tough questions get asked? You know, by the way, that's why you're here. That's why it's important to gather together. It's why it's important to be part of a Sunday school class or a small group so that you're prepared for questions like that. But Moses, he says, 
What if I'm not enough? What if they ask me the tough questions? And here's God's reply to Moses. He says this, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go and call together all the elders, the leaders of Israel. Tell them, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. He told me, I have been watching closely. I have seen the Egyptians and how they're treating you. I have promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you into a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites and Hittites and a bunch of otherites now live. And what's really interesting is that God gives a bit of a history lesson. Moses says, who should I say sent me? Now, in fairness, the Bible hadn't been written yet. Part of it is, is because Moses is going to like write the first five books a little later. So he doesn't have his own writing yet to fall back on. So Burning Bush is talking to him and says, uh, go get my people out of Egypt. And he says, um, simple question, who are you? I kind of know who you are, but who are you? And there's a little theology lesson that Moses receives. It's historically rooted, and it's rooted in the land, and it's rooted in the people, and it's, it acknowledges God saying, I see bad stuff happening, and I'm about to rectify the wrong. God sees what's going, and it's not going well. Now Moses is going to get it, right? I mean, now he's, a, he's identified two fears of failure, and now he's going to get it, not quite. Fear of failure number three. It says this, I will be rejected. It's the fear of rejection. And here's what he says. But Moses protested again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord has never appeared to you? What if they say you're just a poser, a faker? You've learned some stuff out there. You've been under the sun too much or the moon too much or the wind has hit you too hard. What if, what if they just say, I don't want to be around you? Anyone fear rejection? Like that's probably all of us. We're just afraid that if I raise my hand right now, I'll get rejected, right? <laughs> right? And I love how the Lord replies to him. The Lord doesn't say, you know, they won't reject you, because they actually do. It says, then the Lord asked him, what's that in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground. So he throws it down on the ground. The Lord told him. So Moses throws down the staff, and it turns into a snake. Now, how many of you right now wanted to pull your feet up off the floor as soon as you heard the word snake, Right? There's something, by the way, researchers have done this um, study that just an actual photographic image of a snake will, will like raise your temperature and make people perspire a little bit. It's almost, almost um, indiscernible, but with, with the right instruments, they've conducted these studies. And this snake, he says, reach out now and the snake and grab the tail. And if I'm Moses, I'm like, I'm just going to let the snake go. I'll get a new staff. But he grabs it and it turns back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform the sign, the Lord said to him. Then they'll believe the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob really has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses puts his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out again, his hand was white as snow with a severe skin disease, leprosy. Now put your hand back into your cloak. Moses puts his hand back in the cloak, and then he pulls it out again, healthy. And I wonder, did Moses do this like the rest of the night? Because I totally would. You know you would have too. Like, do it again. I would have gone into town and made some money. That's what I would have done. And the Lord said to Moses, 
If they don't believe you and are not convinced by the first miraculous sign, then they'll be convinced by the second sign. If they don't believe you or listen to you, even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile River, pour it on dry ground. When you do, the water from the Nile will turn blood to blood on the ground. And I, I, love, I love what God's saying here is, okay, let's say they reject you. See if they ignore you and you can turn a chunk of wood into a snake. No lie, in this room a couple months ago, a copperhead got in this room. It was over there against the wall. I know a few of you right now are like, you're pulling your feet off the floor, aren't you? You want to look under the seat right now? Be careful, don't get tagged by a copperhead. I'm not sure we got it. Had we gotten it out of here, Zach, or did we get it out of here? Chuck said we did get it out of here. That's good. I'm not lying. The snake was in here. Scout's honor. I wasn't a scout, but I'm being honest. There was in here. Just saying. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh, Lord, I'm not very good. This is my favorite one of all. It's my favorite fear of failure of them all. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Oh, Lord, I'm not, I'm not very good with my words. I never have been. And now, even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. This fear of failure number four. I won't be able to perform. Just, I'll blow it under pressure. Pressure comes stress, whatever. I can't do it. Fear of failure. And I love this moment. Here's what I love about the moment. It's ironic. It's almost humorous. I think when Moses was writing this years past, he was, he was laughing as he wrote it. Because think about it. Moses is talking to the creator of the universe and he's saying with words, I'm not good with words. Let it sink in. It's a slow burn and you'll get it. With words, talking to the creator of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, I'm not good with words. You have to be pretty good with words to talk to God. And he's saying, I'm not very, okay, maybe I'm the only one that thinks that's funny. I think it's funny. But we do this all the time. We look at our situation and we go, you know what? Even though I studied for four years to be a school teacher, and even though I was a teacher's assistant, and even though from age five I've sat under the mentorship of educators all around me, I have studied the art of teaching. Even though all of that's true, I don't think I can do it. Put me in front of a bunch of third graders and I will crumble. It's probably not too late to sign up for truck driving school. I'll try that one. And what we do is we look, at, we look at our situation, and even if we're well-suited for the deal, we still can come up with some cataclysmic scenario where it's not going to work out. And I love God's reply here. He says, Then the Lord asked Moses, Who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? It is I, the Lord. Now go, I will be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what you say. This is God's moment where he's like, you know what? I'm bored with this discussion. You said you can't talk? I made you talk. I gave you lips. I gave you tongue, teeth, the whole thing. Vocal cords, I created it. Go do it. We're done here. <laughs> but Moses isn't done yet. <laughs> Moses is out of excuses. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send someone else. I'd rather not. Thank you very much. There's no fear of failure here. He just goes, I'm going to be obstinate. I'm not going to do it. Now, that takes a lot of courage to stand up to God like that. Also foolishness. And this is dangerous. This is a dangerous place to be. 
I remember feeling this way many, many years ago. I was 35, and um, I was serving a church in Michigan at the time where I'm from, and I was invited to serve a church that was about five times as big in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was um, moving from not overseeing any staff to overseeing several staff, and all the staff I was overseeing were old enough to be my parents. And I remember thinking, this is the dumbest idea ever. All of these people have way more ministry experience I don't know what this church is thinking. I can't do it. You can ask my wife after the interview's over. I went down for the interview not thinking I would get the job. At the end of the interview, they're like, we want you, come on down. And so we were in the airport and I was explaining to my wife why they didn't need to hire me, but they could reorganize their staff because we should play it safe and say where we are. And later that week, I was reading Jeremiah 1. And the, it, it just write down Jeremiah 1, read it later. It's great stuff. And God calls Jeremiah. And uh, Jeremiah does exactly what Moses does. And he goes, you know, why don't you send someone else? And God says, do not say you are too young. You will go where I tell you to go. You will say what I tell you to say. And there's this like stand up straight moment for Jeremiah where you can almost see him salute and say, yes, sir, I will do just that. It can become a very dangerous place when we become obstinate, when God opens up opportunities. And I love the response. It says here, then the Lord became angry with Moses. Now, it's worth reading the rest of the story if you don't know the rest of the story. Read that tonight. But the Lord became angry with Moses ended the discussion, told Moses what to do. Moses gets with the program. question is, how do we overcome the fear of failure? I mean, do we just bolster ourselves? Do we just decide, today I'm going to be courageous? I wonder how that works for you, because that doesn't work so well for me. If I am faced with a difficult situation and I'm afraid that I'm about to crumble underneath it, rarely does it work for me to just do a lot of positive self-talk that I can do it and put on Dr. Phil and watch Dr. Phil and some Oprah and feel better and maybe, maybe go on Instagram and get some happy platitudes and watch a couple of GIF or GIFs, whatever, however you're supposed to say it. I think it's either way. Is that how I'm supposed to do it? If that, if that works for you, I applaud you. You're my hero. That does not work for me. No, I think that um, if we want to overcome failure, we have to do something more than just determine to be courageous. There's this great passage um, in Psalm 63. It's, a, it's written by the second king of Israel, David, and it's a time in his life where he's anointed to be king. He's going to be king, but he's being pursued by Saul. And even though he knows the throne is out there, at times it's within his grasp. If only he just takes it, but he won't take it. He won't just grab hold of it. And so David, out in the wilderness, when things aren't looking so good for him, he sits down and he writes a psalm. And you can almost picture David daily waking up with the fear of failure right there on the horizon. And here's what David says. And I think in his words, he has some instructions for us that can help us overcome these fears of failure that we all face. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I'll just take a break there. And I want to I block through here this psalm looking at a, a handful of keys, keys that will help us overcome, maybe unlock 
um, this issue for many of us. Key number one is put significant effort into getting to know God. Put significant effort into getting to know God. If you're struggling with the fear of failure, put significant effort, not a modest amount of effort, but a radical amount of effort into getting to know God. Um, You're not going to get in shape by watching YouTube videos of other people working out, going on Pinterest and pinning a whole bunch of fitness suggestions. That's not going to help. No, you have to do something that is of intense purposefulness. And I love, I love the key words here is the psalmist says that we, I will earnestly search. I will put like some significant effort into this. And it involves my soul and my body. So here's a couple of things you could do. Read the Bible. But don't just read the Bible. Like actually get into reading the Bible. And when you get into a part of the Bible that you go, I have no idea what this is about. Don't just go, I'm done. Get a study Bible. We sell them in the bookstore. Um, You can even get little commentaries. Camp out on the book of Philippians or the book of James. Pick something from the New Testament that's short and just dive deep into it. There's four chapters in Philippians. Just read the book of Philippians every single day for a month, 30 times. And then grab a little $10 commentary. We sell those in the bookstore too. And get to know the book of Philippians. Just intensely get to know. Read your Bible. Listen to great worship music. Replace whatever you're listening to in the car with great worship music. And as you listen to the worship music, listen to the lyrics. And think to yourself, is this about Jesus or is this about my boyfriend? (laughs) You know, pick worship songs that have great lyrics, that transcend time, that call you to the master, that help you see a picture of living in life beyond this life. Put significant effort, earnest, earnest effort into a search for God. Well, I think that's something David shows us. Number, number two key is let your life be a visible expression of worship. Let your life be a visible expression of worship. This is how, this is how David put it. I have seen you, I've had a vision of you in your sanctuary, in your church, and gazed upon your power and your glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. And you look at the language, and all the language is a language of worship, praise, prayer, lifting up of hands, singing out. But Some of you right now are going to go literal and go, really? So I'm sitting there at the cubicle and I'm afraid that this report isn't going to meet my boss's expectation. So I'm going to have to sing a worship song at the top of my lungs in my cubicle. Of course not. That's not what David's saying. You think he's out there in battle trying to win the battle and singing a song? Actually, knowing David, he probably was. But but does that mean that that's what we need to do? Probably not. No, in fact, the scriptures teach that um, a life well lived is an act of worship. That, um, in fact, God says, I would rather that you live a life of obedience to me than do religious ritual. Obedience is more important than sacrifice, is the literal translation. And, And as you look at the situation that you find yourself, the challenges you find yourself in, how could you turn the the report that you're writing, the paper you have to develop for your class, the, whatever is the challenge before you, how could you turn that into something that honors God? I like how the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he put it this way. He said, work diligently at whatever you do as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. 
Isn't that good? Work diligently for the Lord instead of the people that are in front of you. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. How do you, come, how do you overcome fear of failing at work is recognize I'm not going to disappoint my manager because I'm going to work for the Lord. In fact, if your boss comes in and goes, like, this is subpar work, you'd be like, well, the Lord likes it. Wait, but don't do that. Maybe don't do that. Especially if it's subpar work. Do not do that. But what if you approach the tedious aspects of your job that you really do poor work with? If you're honest, you go, I drag my feet. I don't do my best work there because why? Nobody does. But what if you did? What if at work you said, you know what? I'm going to do this tedious, mundane, meaningless thing as if the creator of the universe is on the receiving end of it, and I'm going to do it as an act of worship for him, because according to Paul, it is. Now, would that change a thing or two? And let's say your boss comes up and says, I don't like what you did there. But in your heart, you know you did the very best work you could because you did it for the Lord. And maybe it does cost you something, but you go... You know, in the end of the day, I don't feel like I failed because I feel like I pleased my master. I might not have pleased my boss. Some bosses are like that. Some bosses are jerks. And some of them you can't please. But you can always please your heavenly master if you do good work for him. And by the way, there's, there's something really interesting hiding in verse 3. It says, your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. And unfailing love is this, um, in Hebrew, it's hesed. Hesed is this idea of unfailing love, and unfailing love has this idea of life-giving, life-sustaining. It's the life-giving, life-sustaining of God. So here is like this weird poetic passage, and those of you who are linguistically minded, you'll get this, and the rest of you just keep staring at me. So what, what David is saying is, here's a weird, like, twisty idea, is that the life-sustaining thing we get from God that sustains our life is better than our life itself. It's reminiscent of a story in Daniel where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are supposed to bow down and they won't do it. And so the king says, I'm throwing you in a fiery furnace if you don't do it. And they say, hey, you know what? God can, God can preserve our life. He can, has said, he can sustain us, but even if he doesn't, my life's not worth it. I mean, my life is worth actually infinitely more. So go ahead, burn me in the fire. I didn't want to work for you anyhow. So throw me in the fire. God can either save me if he wants to, but even if he doesn't, my life pales in comparison to the life-giving that God gives me. It's almost as if David is seen past this world into another world entirely. And then in verse 5, David says this, You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. David didn't have a lot of rich feasts during this chapter of his life. He says, I'll lie awake thinking of you, meditating on you through the night. And there's a key here, and this is, um, I might be stretching the text a little bit, but go with me. I'm just going to take a little preacher's liberty on this one. Key number three is refocus your fear. You're dealing with the fear of failure, refocus your fear. And here's what I take away in the application from what David's saying is, I don't have a whole lot going on. The closet is mostly empty. There's not a lot of food on the table. I'm going to bed hungry every night. But guess what? Serving the Lord is better than a big feast. 
I'm more full because of what God provides than if I could provide an enormous feast for myself. A Thanksgiving feast pales in comparison to the presence of God. I'd rather have the presence of God. I can find contentment in that, which echoes something the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament. Whether I have a lot or a little, I'm pretty content in all things through Christ who gives me strength. And here's David saying, you know what? You satisfy me like it was a great feast. I lie awake thinking of you. Do any of you lie awake at night? You have a little anxiety come over you? Am I always going to be stuck in this apartment sharing rent with these three bozos that never clean up their dishes? I see a lot of head nods right now. Am I always going to be at the second level of a seven-level organizational structure in this place? Am I ever going to get to level six? Forget it. Am I ever going to get to level four? And you lay there awake, and you can't sleep, and you toss, and you turn, and you get up for one more drink of water. What if as you were laying there awake, you just talked to God and you recounted the many blessings he gives and the anxiety, you just kind of shuttle past that to him and you just take in the goodness that he offers you and you recognize that I might be lying awake, but actually lying awake might be a gift. It might be a gift from God. This time I can have with him. And if I'm not going to go back to sleep, I might as well get up and actually just read the Bible, my new study Bible that I just got from the bookstore. By the way, I'm not a rep for the bookstore. Get it off Amazon for all I care. Okay, But you refocus. Don't dream of your happy place. Sometimes he will tell you to do that. It's ludicrous. It's the dumbest thing ever. Oh, you're miserable? Think of your happiest memory. Oh, well, great. I'm more miserable now. Thank you. you know? Think of your favorite place to go on vacation you can't afford. Oh, wow. Well, that was terrific. You know? And my friend posted pictures of it on Instagram. I hate them. I've unfriended them, actually. Wake up in the middle of the night. Use it as an opportunity to connect with God. That's key number four. Just refocus. Key number, that was key number three. Key number four. Trust God with the outcome. I love this one. Trust God with the outcome. This is the end of the road here. Trust God with the outcome. You can't control whether you succeed or fail, so just trust God with the outcome. It's a smart thing to do. Here's what David said. Because you're my helper, I sing for joy in the shadows of your wings. I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. But those plotting to destroy me He's in the wilderness being pursued by Saul, by the way. But those plotting to destroy me will come to ruin. They will go down into the depths of the earth. You see, and God's my defender. I don't have to defend myself. Then verse 10. I like this one, actually. This is one of my favorite. I think if you're like into Scripture verses that you put up on chalkboards, you should do this. They will die by the sword and become food for the jackals. It's in the Bible. I mean, really. I'm going to get my 13-year-old boy to memorize that one. And by the way, this is for free. This has nothing to do with any point, but I just discovered it as I was studying this passage, and I absolutely love it. Die by the sword in Hebrew, it just means flesh fall over the handle of the sword. How's that for vivid? In other words, jab them with a sword in like the, it comes over, get it? You know what I'm saying? It's gross, right? There's like a, oh, that's too much. It's in the Bible. David was a warrior, and it's a poem, so it's okay. But it evidently, it does say something that in the vividness of prayer. Sometimes we might take it a bridge too far, and I think God can handle that. You're having a struggle with someone at work, and you say, God, let the sword disappear into the belly of their flesh, like David prayed. Maybe don't do that, but it is in the Bible. Verse 11, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear to tell the truth will praise him, while liars will be silenced. In other words, God's justice will prevail. You can trust God with the outcome because his justice will prevail. Not necessarily on our timetable, but on his. But it will prevail. 
My friends, it boils down to this. The fear of failure can only be defeated if it is transformed. Get this. The fear of failure can only be defeated if it's transformed into abiding trust in God. You can't just stop fearing failure. It's got to be transformed. You have to trust in something, someone far greater than your fear. Two questions to ponder that I'm going to leave you with. And if you write things down, write these two down because I want you to really ponder these. These are two questions to ponder. If you're in a small group, discuss them. After um, this is all over, if you go out to eat somewhere or have something to drink, discuss these questions. If you're in the college group, you'll go into the glass room afterwards uh, over there and uh, there'll be great discussions for you there. But here's the questions. What am I afraid of failing at? You you answered that at the beginning, but I'm going to guess that you've had now uh, a little bit of time to think about that. And how can, I turn, how can I turn that fear into trust in God? What, what's that going to take? What's it going to take to transform that into God's, into trust in God? Well, as we do here at the gathering is uh, a way of transitioning through worship, we take two minutes, 120 seconds. And it's a time of, of reflection. It's a space where, where we're able to just think about, we're able to consider what God is trying to say to us in the hectic and the busy part of life. We come into this room with all kinds of commotion. And so we take two minutes of quiet in our soul. And I'm going to pray for us very briefly, and we'll have those two minutes. Lord, we are grateful for the opportunity we've had to gather here. Would you take some of the words that I said or something and let it be... Let it be this moment. Let it be this, um, this post, this marker. Let your word speak to us in such clear and captivating ways that we can't get enough of it and that it brings transformation into our lives. We would pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.